Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house to you, and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah, and if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house, because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I am going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you, and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, The Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But because by doing this you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. This is God's word. All right. Thanks, Nathan. Love a good feel-good passage (laughs) to get us ready to go. Father God, thank you, Lord, for for bringing us together on this uh, beautiful Sunday. Lord, I pray that... uh, that this word that, that we've prepared would just be one that is a blessing to everyone here. Um, the story of David, I think, is a tremendous one and clearly one that you've used to uh, just feed and teach your people for a really long time. So I pray that, uh, that that's exactly what happened here, that people would, hear, would, would listen to this word and listen to this story and be able to walk away encouraged, uh, not in their own good deeds, not in David's good deeds, but in the uh, goodness of your son, Jesus. Um, and just uh, help me be a good vessel in the meantime. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. You know, I heard someone say one time that there are no heroes in the Bible. I don't think that's without trying, though. I think that a lot of uh, individuals in Scripture tends to get this kind of uh, Sunday schoolification where we take a lot of key figures, especially in the Old Testament for whatever reason, and they just kind of get boiled down into this common virtue where it's like, man, you want to talk about bravery? Daniel was like the embodiment of bravery. You know, Noah, what a trusting guy. Noah built a giant boat because God asked him to. Noah is a trusting guy. Uh, Abraham. Abraham was asked to move, and he moved. What a being of perfect faith. And so we take these complex human beings who are just as motivated by all the like weird things that we are, and we just turn them into like one-dimensional creatures. I mean, we mentioned Noah. We call him the king of trust, despite the fact that dude probably had a serious alcohol problem. Or we talk about Abraham as this perfect being of faith, despite the fact that on several different occasions, he tried to give away his wife to sleep with strangers to save his own skin. So it turns out a lot of the people that we try to turn into heroes are much less than that. And that's kind of what I want to do with David. There's 
a single side of David's life that I think a lot of us, when we think of King David, immediately think of. We think of uh, the, the dude who took down Goliath. David, the true underdog. The guy who was the man after God's own heart, did all these wonderful things. And yeah, he did that one really bad thing. But aside from that, a flawless life. And I think that when we look at scripture, that the second half of David's life kind of becomes this dark side of the moon that we don't really touch because we don't really know what to do with it. And so uh, this week, we're going to go fairly quickly through the part of David's life that many of us are already familiar with, just so that everyone has apt background. And then we're going to spend some time on the dark side of the moon. So... Let's, uh, let's jump in. I've also got a bunch of pictures today because there's a lot of story and I feel like that'll help you track a little better. So, King David, you'd be hard-pressed to find anyone, especially in the Old Testament, who was a more crucial figure than King David. I mean, like, if you look at modern-day Israel, look at their flag, the symbol on their flag is literally called the Star of David. Jerusalem, their capital, and the, the, the place that New Jerusalem was named after is the city of David. And so David is this key figure for a lot of reasons. And, you know, we can start with that. He was an interesting guy in that, yes, we know that he was the king, but he was also a very accomplished warrior. Dude knew his way around the sword. He was a very proficient battler. He knew how to take care of business when it came to warfare. But on the flip side of it, David was also an accomplished singer and songwriter. Dude, uh, dude honestly loved to, to play his little lyre and hang out with, <laughs> with sheep. Also, I, I make this disclaimer every time I use images. These are all going to be the uh, anglicizations of all of these dudes. Probably a, about four or five shades lighter than they actually were. But this is what Google Images has. This is what we do. So there you go. But yeah, David, aside from being an accomplished warrior, was also an accomplished singer-songwriter. When we look at the book of Psalms, where the church and the people of God got all of their music and their worship from for a long time, many of those books were written by David. So he was a hardened individual who knew how to be rough and fight for justice. But he was also a sensitive man. You know, a softer guy, in touch with the arts. Um, I think, honestly, David's sensitivity is something that comes up more and more as we get into his story. Uh, David cries freaking constantly, like, throughout his story. Like, such and such, like, like, he'd be warring with this terrible person for, like, six chapters. And then when the terrible person is finally killed, what happens? David's just inconsolable just weeping his eyes out because the guy who was trying to kill him for six months ended up dying. It's just really devastating. One of my favorite little snippets of David's life was when uh, there was another leader who was trying to take the throne from David. Uh, the guy that killed him like, came to David and said, hey, I killed this guy. David, out of a sense of justice, demanded that the man who just came in front of him be killed, which he was, 
And then David cried and wrote a song about the enemy who was just taken down. Like, this is the complexity of David, you know? Sensitive guy, strong, longing for justice. But the interesting thing about David is that he has probably one of the most flattering titles in the whole of Scripture. He's called the man after God's own heart. And I may have to remind you guys that he has that title once we get into the second half of the story here, because we might forget. But ultimately, I think the reason he gets such a flattering title is because he has such a heart that is genuinely reflective of God in so many areas. He is a sensitive guy, but his sensitivity is expressed in compassion. He feels such deep compassion for his friends for his family, for the people around him, for his nation that he eventually would lead. Often, David shows deep compassion even for his enemies, even for the people that deeply hate him. And I think it's because of that compassion that he reflects the heart of God. But also, he does truly just love God. When he's a warrior, he is fighting to defend the goodness of God. And when he's a poet, He is writing about all the beautiful things of God. David is a very interesting dude. So we don't want to downplay a lot of his negativities. So if we go into the next photo we have here, at a certain point after David is, uh, you know, uh, uh, there's a lot of story here, but essentially uh, Israel, the people of God, Uh, asks for a king, not because they need one, but because they see the other nations and they think, hey, I think that would be pretty cool. God tells them, you don't need a king. They insist. So God gives them this dude named Saul, who is not a great king. And then out of mercy, God appoints this new man full of humble love and compassion by the name of David. And after a lot of squabbling back and forth between David and Saul, eventually David is appointed as king of Israel. At this time, he's been given a tremendous blessing and honor. He is the leader of the people of God. He is loved and adored by his people He has a strong bond and connection with the priests and the prophets of the land. The the Holy Ghost has just been blessing the heck out of Israel's military. So they're just doing great things in the face of their enemies. David is in the high point of his life. He is worshiping God and happy and things are good until they're not. One day... A battle is going on against this uh, tribe called the Ammonites. And David, as king of the army, should have been present for this battle, but he wasn't. He was at home, whether he was resting or just not feeling it. While he's at home, he decides to go for a little late night stroll on the rooftop of his palace. When he's doing so, he sees a woman bathing by herself, and he thinks to himself, That's a good-looking lady. He asks about her, and he finds out that her name is Bathsheba, and that Bathsheba is married, and not just married, married to actually one of David's mighty men, this dude named Uriah. That doesn't stop David and what he's thinking of. David is out, or I'm sorry, Uriah is out at war at this time, 
where David should be. And so David sees this as an opportunity, and he sends for Bathsheba, and they sleep together. That is exactly what happened. There's always a, a lot of discussion. This is a little bit of a sidebar. There's always a lot of discussion about the role that Bathsheba played in this whole scenario. I've even heard some people go as far as to say that Bathsheba was like this temptress who I guess was uh, bathing in the same spot every night, hoping that the king from this giant palace would see her. I don't think there's any biblical grounds to this. And I also think that it's worth acknowledging that David was the king of Israel. They lived in a monarchy where the word of the king is final. If we want to talk about seduction and, and all that stuff, all, all I can really say is that like, as we understand the significance of something like consent, I don't really know how consent exists when the king sends for you. And so I think the interpreters who have tried to use this as an opportunity to paint Bathsheba as some kind of seductress, I think those people should, uh, should stop. And so David and Bathsheba sleep together and she winds up getting pregnant. David panics and thinks to himself, well, uh, if I call her husband back from the front lines of battle, then they can sleep together and maybe no one will realize that uh, maybe, you know, that there was a little bit of uh, not continuity. And they'll just assume that when Bathsheba has the baby, that it was her husband's. The like bitingest irony occurs in that Uriah is called back home from the battlefield, but he refuses to even sleep at home with his wife. And when he's asked why, he's literally sleeping by the gates near the battle. And when they ask him why, he says, my friends and fellow army men, and the glory of the Lord are out there. Who am I to enjoy my wife while my friends suffer on the battlefield? And so David's got to be like, you've got to be kidding me, bro. Like, I'm giving you free leave, and you won't even hang out with your wife. And so David realizes that he's out of options. He makes arrangements. He talks to the head captain of his military, and he orders that Uriah be sent to the front lines of battle. And as the battle is getting its most intense and its most heated, to withdraw the men away from Uriah so that he would stand there alone and that he would be killed. And that's exactly what happens. When Bathsheba finds out that her husband has been killed, she mourns. And then she's brought to David's palace as his new wife. So David, the man that we spoke very honestly of earlier, this man who was very compassionate, who loved the law of God, who wrote songs of worship to him, this man of honor, this man of humility, he committed adultery with another man's wife. He lied and tried to manipulate his way out of it. And then when he couldn't, he killed an innocent man simply so he could save face. And even in doing so, he compromised his military and the well-being of his people. 
So finally, we find ourselves at the point in the text that Nathan read for us tonight, the words of Nathan. The prophet of God was speaking and rebuking the king who had committed this sin and was most likely relatively unmoved by it until God's man came and confronted him. David is heartbroken when this finally hits him. Honestly, I I believe that statement when I say David was wounded when he realized the weight of what he had done. He realizes he committed an awful sin. He confesses his sin before God and he strives to repent. And for many of us, this is where the story of David comes to a complete close. We see David, this man of victory, David, the perpetual underdog, David, the guy who took down Goliath, who humbly defeated Saul, and who, you know, uh, had a slip-up involving a bad idea with a pretty lady. But ultimately, David the king, David the masterful. So we're going to explore the second half of his life now. The first thing that happens, which was uh, in the passage that Nathan read for us, is that his baby dies. And there's honestly just so much you could get into about the concept of a child dying literally for the sins of that child's father. That's That's a deep and heavy topic to try to dissect. But at the very least, we can acknowledge this was an awful, awful tragedy. And I'm glad that God was the one who did it, because if anyone else did, I don't know if I could see it as just. But imagine the pain that David and Bathsheba experienced, knowing that their child would not survive as a result of what David had done. We'll get into this more later, but I think that this is the black cloud that hovers over David for the rest of his life. I don't, I don't think he's ever going to quite be able to shake off the fact that his sin caused this to happen. Literally the next chapter, David has a son, or I'm sorry, David's son by the name of Amnon Amnon is the oldest of David's siblings. By, you know, by default, Amnon should have been the, the, the son who inherited the kingdom once David would die. But I think what we realize is we're very grateful that didn't happen. See, Amnon realized that one day that he was in love. And the woman he was in love with was, unfortunately, his half-sister, this woman, this woman by the name of Tamar. He understood that to, to sleep with his half-sister would be a terrible scandal, and yet he feels tortured with the feelings that he has for her. And so he pretends to be sick one day, and he asks Tamar to come to, you know, make some food for him, kind of kind of nurture him as he's feeling lousy. And he propositions her, and she declines, and he overpowers her, and he assaults her. Let's remember at this time that David 
was the king of Israel. If anyone had the power and the authority to ensure that someone who had broken a law this egregious would come to justice, it was him. And yet for two years, Amnon, the son of David, goes unpunished. In fact, ironically, it wasn't David at all who was going to bring justice to this sinful man. It was David's son, Absalom, who was filled with fury at the sin of his brother. And what eventually, when he realized that justice wasn't going to come the natural way, ambushed his brother and murdered him. Absalom would flee the city out of fear. He would eventually be welcomed back into the courts, but he would never have a healing relationship with his father, David. They would never, never really reconcile. Absalom started to grow in bitterness towards his father, feeling like David wasn't well-equipped to be a king, that he wasn't the man that he was in his earlier years. And so Absalom started to rally support from the people of Israel and would eventually launch a rebellion that would force David, his father, to flee from the city. An extended period of time elapses as Absalom sends thousands and thousands of men to kill his father so that he can eventually be made king. Absalom would fail, as we see in the, uh, the last picture, sorry, um, Strange story would happen when as he was riding by on his donkey, he would get his hair tangled in an oak tree and he'd be found by David's men. And even though he wasn't supposed to be killed because David couldn't stomach that, they killed him as a rebel of the kingdom. Another side note, hundreds and thousands of men would be killed in this skirmish defending the honor and the kingdom of David. And yet the only person David wept for was his son. To the point to where one of his generals had to say, why do you weep for those who hate you and scorn those who love you? David doesn't seem like he's quite the same. Near the end of David's life, another one of his sons that by the name of Adonijah would proclaim himself the next king of Israel following his father's death. And despite the fact that David had already proclaimed that, his that the next king would be Solomon, Adonijah would also be killed as a result of his attempted rebellion, leaving three dead sons in the lineage of David, leaving a mark on his life and leaving a mark on his legacy. So all of this brings to light that when we want to tell a simplified story of David, but honestly of anyone, biblical or one of us, anytime we want to tell a simplified story, it's never quite accurate. David didn't have the privilege to just bounce back after the evil that he had done. His actions had a deep and devastating impact on himself and on his family, and on his legacy. He seems to be almost a shadow of himself. So let's explore what that means to us today.
My first point is the weight of sin. <sighs> the weight of sin. I think what becomes very clear in the aftermath of what David had done was that there was a tremendous weight. There was a heaviness to what he had done. If we've been in Christian culture for a while, and some of us have and some of us haven't, which is perfectly fine, uh, we've surely seen our fair share of like prominent, successful Christian leaders fall in some terrible way. Usually in the form of scandal, oftentimes involving affairs and abuses of power. Now, we, the, the question that might be popping up as we're talking about this much sin is, well, well John, like, for, we're, we're Christians. What about forgiveness? Like, forgiveness is present for all of us in the wrong that we do. Why are we spending so much time talking about sin as if none of it can be forgiven? Now, you're absolutely right to think that. Forgiveness is one of the cornerstones of our faith. It's one of the things that we love about God, that he would have the grace to forgive us of the things that we have done. But it would be dangerous and foolish to imagine that our sins don't also carry consequences with them. If I were to do something like harm my wife or assault somebody physically or ram my car into a business, God could forgive me. I, I hope that he would. But if we assume that just because God's going to wave a magic wand and forgive something doesn't mean that the consequences, again, that weight is not going to be present. I don't get to not go to jail if I, if I punch the heck out of somebody right now, even if God forgives me. I'm not removed from the responsibilities of my actions just because there is divine forgiveness. In fact, that shows a really poor understanding of what forgiveness is even about. Andy has shared on a couple different occasions this friend he had who uh, had a really low view of Christianity. And when he asked him about it, he said, well, my, my sister became a Christian and she's the worst person that I know. And the reason is because she has such a high understanding of this idea of forgiveness that anytime I, try to, I or anyone else tries to confront her for what she's done, she just throws her hands up and says, I'm forgiven. I'm not accountable. I'm not responsible. I'm forgiven. Who are you to say something to me if God has given me a free pass? That shows a complete misunderstanding of what the weight of forgiveness is supposed to be, but also it shows a misunderstanding of the types of effects that wrongdoing can have, not just on our lives, but on others. Here's the thing. The first son that we talked about, Amnon, the one that uh, raped his half-sister, the terrifying thing about it is how much it reflects the sin of David against Bathsheba. It literally says that both of them were men of esteem who saw a woman that they, saw, that they thought was beautiful and decided to take them under 
whatever stakes or whatever it would take. Like, I, I, am, I have no reason, and I don't think any of us have any reason to doubt the legitimacy of David's austere repentance when he finally realized what he had done. But here's the thing. David was his dad. He witnessed, this boy witnessed the wrongdoing of his father and in a way inherited it. Now, not in the sense to where this guy didn't have the ability to choose between right and wrong. He wasn't stuck on a railroad that forced him to make this decision. But we also can't look at the wrongdoing of others, specifically people with impact like parents, and not see a connection there. I think that as we look at David's past, you know, I mentioned that I think that the death of his baby boy was the dark cloud that he was never able to escape from. This is, this is conjecture, you know, this is, this is kind of guesswork, but I, I think we can get there. I think we could say that the reason that David was so hands-off in dealing with his sons was because the, the sin that he had committed had cost one of his sons their life. And I think that David had this deep sense of shame that maybe gave him a feeling of hesitation, like, well, I've done a lot of bad things in my life. Who am I to confront my boys for what they're doing? And I think he felt a lot of shame and a lot of fear, and that caused him to be a lot more hands-off as a father than he ought to have been. Rather than stepping into their lives as they were doing things that they shouldn't have done, instead of taking the opportunity to walk them into repentance and healing, he stood back and he literally let them die in their own sins. And so we should imagine the full weight of everything that happens in this story. It affected David's life, his perception of things, his, effect, his perception of himself as a father. It affected his children and the way that they tended to live their life. And it affected all who were able to see his life. David's sin, even though it was forgiven, it wasn't this tiny forgettable blip in his life. It was this rock that smashed through the surface of the water and left ripples in every direction. And honestly, we don't have to look to just the Bible for these types of examples. We can look around and see how we, there's this tremendous impact of the wrongdoing of others and how it, how it really sows its seeds into others. Like, I mean, uh, I, I work, I, many of you guys know this, I worked in, as a social worker for a few years before I got into uh, ministry here at Mission. One of my favorite things was um, parents who would, who would come to us and say, uh, you know, he, he misbehaves in class, he, he, he yells, he's impulsive, and he curses so much. He curses left and right. He's got this terrible potty mouth. But the parents are like cussing and angry as they're telling me about their children. And I'm like, well, I, I don't know where this came from, Mrs. Johnson. I, I have no idea. It probably just came out of thin air. Like the impact of the parents' actions on the, the actions of their, of their children. There's this, uh, 
I, I, I threw this little section here last second. There's this rap song that I love. I'm a big hip-hop fan. Many of you guys know this. By the group Little Brother. Um, the second verse of it is this dude who's reflecting on his relationship with his father. And it's honestly this truly like heartbreaking verse because he talks about how growing up he felt this strong tension between himself and his dad. And he always felt a little resentful because his dad wasn't a present father because while he was still young, his parents separated But as he continues to reflect, he realizes that as he would grow up to be a young man, he would also have his own child out of wedlock with a woman who he would eventually split with. And he realizes he felt so much frustration and anger towards towards his dad, only to fall into the exact same pattern of living, feeling like he's stuck in this chain. And he ends the song with this line that just like, just completely kills me the whole time. He says, so Pop, how could I blame you because I, I'm sorry. So Pops, how could I blame you because you couldn't maintain? I did the same thing, the same thing. Yeah, the weight of sin, it's heavy. Let me get to my second point. The deliverance from sin, the deliverance from sin. I think the question we need to ask here as we've considered all these things that David has done, as we consider the brutal humanity of this man is what is the way forward after your actions have brought, your, have brought tremendous harm and hurt to yourself and to others? What is the, the path out if you fall into scandal, or even what's the way forward if we've been deeply affected by the great hurts of someone else. I would say, looking at the life of David, I think that what hurt him the most was shame. I think that, like I said, he never truly recovered or healed from knowing all of, the, all of the wrath that came against his family because of his sin. I don't think he ever recovered from the fact that he lost a child to his actions. And I think that left him unwilling to engage with his sons in their own misdeeds. I think that instead of engaging with his sons in the ways that they were living their lives, he, he allowed distance to grow. I think even as he saw reflections of himself in his sons as they were acting out of rebellion, he allowed that distance to be there because I think he felt even shame in knowing that their sins looked like his. David had become painfully familiar with the despair that sin can bring to us. But he also lost sight of the hope that we have as well. See, our series for the past few weeks has been on trust and trusting God in the light of our failures. It actually doesn't just mean considering the weight of sin that we talked about earlier. It also means seeing the hope that we can be delivered from our sins, not just through God saying, I forgive you, but through walking in the light of healing and of repentance. See, I, th- I think David was afraid 
of walking into that. I think he was afraid of it because the voice of shame was just so loud. And here's the thing. Shame can be an antidote for the pain that we feel. Sometimes shame is something that we use to cover up the wounds that we've inflicted on ourselves. We use shame as a blanket to comfort ourselves and say, well, hey, at least I'm taking this really seriously. That's why I feel all of this shame. But shame doesn't actually heal. Shame only buries. And also, all the wounds that it's supposed to be covering, it only serves to infect. I have this story I want to share real quick. I had a conversation with my dad about, uh, it, was, it was actually the week, week that I got married. So it was about about month, two months ago. And uh, my dad and I have just like, we've been definitely like taking some really, really awesome steps into just like the healing of our relationship. I feel like we've been, we've been getting a lot closer and it's been a wonderful thing. I'm very grateful for. And I, uh, I'd been carrying this weight of something that I had done, like, geez, like back when I was maybe 12 or 13, I, um, here, I'll, I'll get into it. I, uh, it was the dumbest thing in the world. So um, my dad, just because of many of his past experiences, my dad is a very intelligent dude. My dad has a ton of wisdom and I love the heck out of him. But for many reasons, my dad has a, a really like a, a strong sensitivity to being called like unintelligent, to being called like things that insult his intelligence are a big sensitive point to my dad. And I, I've, no, I've realized this a lot being older, but being young and dumb, I didn't. And so uh, there, there was like kind of this occasion where me being the same fool that I am today who often tries to be funny and says things that I shouldn't, um, I, I ended up calling my dad ignorant. But here's the thing. Um, the, um, the most embarrassing thing about this story was that I, I didn't at the time actually know what ignorant meant because ignorant has ignore in it. I thought that to be ignorant meant you're the kind of person who ignores like finer details. So maybe someone who's ignorant is not someone who is unintelligent. Someone who's ignorant is someone who, you know, maybe doesn't pay a lot of attention to like important details. So I thought I was making a very funny, lighthearted jab to my dad who received it as the most hurtful thing you could ever say. And my dad said to me, word for word, it's going to be very difficult to forget that my son said this about me. And I was like, and, and I, I don't fault him for that. He was absolutely hurt, and I had no idea what I was doing, and it was just such a mess. And the, the frustrating thing was, I never even tried to defend myself. I never even tried to say that I didn't understand what I was saying. I just kind of let it be, and I was punished, and I just kind of sit in this shame. And so zoom forward like 20 years, and I've been carrying this weight of shame on my shoulders, specifically in relation to my dad, thinking no matter how close my dad and I get, 
He's only going to see me as the son who said something so hurtful and harmful to him that we're always going to have a very low ceiling as to our relationship. And so we're having this conversation at IHOP. We've been talking for like three hours. He's sharing with me about parts of his life he'd never shared. I'm doing the same. We're just having this beautiful heart to heart. And we're about to leave. And I say, Dad, hold on. There was this time when I called you ignorant. And Dad, I'm so sorry. And Dad, I didn't even know what it meant but I have felt so ashamed and embarrassed for this thing that I said to you. And it just, like, it's been eating at me ever since. And my dad said to me, son, I don't remember what you're talking about. (laughs) And just like the weight of a thousand anvils just grew wings and flew off into the ventilation system of that IHOP. Just this feeling of like, are you, are you kidding me? Like I've been pouring like hot coals over my head for 20 years and you don't even remember. And immediately it hit me like, when God says, that he won't remember our sins. It was immediately like, no, this is, this is it. This is exactly what he was talking about. Because what shame does is shame likes to attach itself to you. And wherever you go and whatever you think about, when you think of yourself, that shame is sitting right there. And when you think of the other people in your life that you try to love and that you try to take care of, that shame sits there right on your shoulder to remind you of who you are. And when you think about God and how you might try with an ounce of effort to serve him well, that shame is there to remind you who you actually are. So when God says that he won't remember it, What he's saying is, I will remember this, though. I'll remember that you are my child. I'll remember that you are good and clean in my sight. And that shame can't live here. And uh, that's what David needed, you know? David needed that crowbar to rip that shame off of him. And I think many of us might need that as well. I have gone off of my notes. (laughs) No, but uh, what I love about this story that I shared is that it shows this idea that forgiveness is not just the erasing of the bad things that we've done. Forgiveness is the removing of our wrongs and the restoring of who we really are. And who we are is not something our shame could ever explain or define. Who we are is children of the Most High God, loved and cared for and filled with a spirit that gives us strength to show a world that is living in shame and brokenness that there is hope in the face of Jesus. And I, I, you know, I had to scribble this in between my notes because I, I just needed to try to say it. If, if, if you're carrying a hurt 
or a wound that wasn't from your own actions, but from the actions of another. It is important to know that that same shame that endangers you from your own sin can still attack you and make you vulnerable, even from the sins of another person. And that if you're carrying this weight of pain from someone else's wrongdoings, know that Jesus is mourning and present with you in the midst of that pain. And we think so much about the sins of the Father, these generational sins that come down no matter how hard we try to resist them. Our encouragement should be that God is our heavenly Father and we have no sin to inherit from him, and we have no wrongdoing to inherit from our heavenly father. All we have to inherit is grace upon grace upon grace. One of my favorite scenes from David's story, uh, when he first was made king of Israel, he tells God, God, what, what good is it for me to live in this palace when you live in a tent outside? God, I want to make you a temple. I want you to be worshipped reverently and respectfully. And God tells David, I love you for saying that, but I don't actually want you to build this temple. That's going to be the task of one of your sons. But I'll make you a promise Beyond what you could imagine, David, is what God says. He says that one of your sons is going to carry this kingdom into eternity. He's going to carry it in a way where it's unblemished and it's never marred or made imperfect. This kingdom is going to live forever into eternity and my temple will be established and it will never be torn down. I can imagine on David's deathbed, him thinking to himself about the sins of Amnon and the sins of Absalom and the sins of Adonijah and wondering to himself, I wonder if God went back on his promise. But here's the good news. The promise made to David did not end with David. Whether he realized it or not, David was a part of a much bigger story than himself. He was part of the story of God breaking into the history of a broken world to bring his creation back to himself. And whether we realize it or not, we are a part of this exact same story. So when you look at yourself, or even when you look at the, the painful awful sins, the things that you wish with all your might you could have taken back. Let that weight sit for a moment, but only a moment. Recognize that you've caused pain. Recognize that you failed yourself. You failed other people. You even brought pain to the tender and holy heart of God. Feel it for a moment, but only a moment. But before that weight brings to you that shame, remember the story that God has written you into. Remember the divine hope that God has given you. 
the hope of forgiveness that listens to you confessing your deepest failures at an IHOP and says, son, I love you. I don't remember what you're talking about. The hope that gives second chances to the people that, have, that you have failed and the hope that, you will, that will restore you one day and rebuild the mistakes that you've made brick by brick while you're still alive. And the hope that will one day make all things new. For this we pray. Please pray with me. Father, thank you for uh, just the kindness that you've shown to us today and uh, many days beyond this. Um, God, we thank you that your forgiveness is not just this random, cheap forgiveness. It's not just expunging our record and making us look better on paper, but that it's a forgiveness that does exactly what David was afraid to do. It's a forgiveness that walks with us in our wounds, in our mistakes, in our sin patterns, and helps us to see the hope that you have given us, the hope of healing, the hope of growth. We thank you for that forgiveness. Please remind us of that, because it can be difficult when we find ourselves in a rut and we feel like we're beyond change. Lord, remind us that we're not. Remind us that even the, the, the devastating things that we could have brought to people around us are not beyond the, the, the goodness of who you are and that even the people that we've hurt can still receive healing from you from the things that we've done. So God, please bring us peace. Not in our goodness because we have none, but in the goodness that you give us and the hope that you give us and the beauty of the story that you've invited us into. So Lord, uh, just, uh, yeah, show your face to us today. In Jesus' name, amen.